0: Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and drawn top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. For this week's podcast, I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Nadia Sava, also known as Dr. Greenhouse. She is the president and founder of Dr. Greenhouse Incorporated, an agricultural and mechanical engineering firm that specializes in the design of HVAC systems for indoor plant environments. Dr. Saba has her PhD in agricultural engineering from the University of Arizona's Controlled Environment Agricultural Center, and she is a licensed mechanical engineer in the state of California. For over 20 years, she has dedicated her education and career to helping farmers control their environments, allowing them to grow crops indoors, in greenhouses, and in facilities that would otherwise be impossible or impractical to do so. In this week's episode, we talk about a variety of topics ranging from VPD to plant transpiration to optimizing your drying and curing environment. Now on to the show. Hi, Nadia. Thanks for coming on the show today.
1: Hi, Tad. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm so excited to talk to you.
0: Yeah, I always enjoy uh, my conversations with you. And I wanted to start off just chatting a little bit about what you've been up to since the last time we talked.
1: Wow, I feel like so much has happened since the last time we talked. In fact, I think the last time you and I really, really talked was the last conference that I went to before the pandemic started, which was, uh, the indoor agriculture energy conference in San Diego back in February of 2020. Um, that was a super cool conference. Um, great, great content, great people, um, and great to, to catch up with people like you. Um, so Yeah, uh, you know, we've been doing pretty good, uh, even even with COVID and the pandemic. Uh, since you and I saw each other in San Diego, we've hired two more engineers, full-time engineers. So we are now a staff, including myself, of four engineers. Um, we also hired a marketing person, um, and we have, you know, uh, our admin staff, and we are seven strong right now. So we've been growing over the last year, year and a half. Uh, So that's been really exciting. Uh, We are approaching, I think, 150 projects since I started Dr. Greenhouse. We are actually celebrating our fifth year. Uh, So we uh, officially, January 1st of 2022, will be five years. Um, since starting Dr. Greenhouse first as a sole prop and then as, as a corporation. Uh, so uh, it's it's amazing to think that, you know, I started by myself five years ago, and now I have a staff of seven, and we continue to grow and um, work on projects all over the country and you know, spattering around the world, you know, both in, in cannabis as well as leafy greens and berries and tomatoes and, all other sorts of plants you can think of that people are trying to grow indoors. It's, it's, a uh, it's been a wild ride. Um, I, I, attended, you know, my first conference in a year and a half live. I was at the cannabis conference last month and it was so great to, to see people and catch up with people. And, um, it was, uh, you know, I like that event a lot just because it's, it's very educational in content, um, a lot of great people, uh, and we actually did a podcast. Uh, we posted just a couple weeks ago where I talked to people on on the exhibit floor and asked them a couple questions about the state of the industry and, and what they learned at the conference. and And it's really fascinating because out of I think what the seven or eight people that we talked to, everybody had a different a different uh, response had had different thoughts. Um, and And so I, I just love hearing all those different perspectives. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what we've been up to, you know, just busy, um, getting more and more projects, a lot more repeat clients, um, which, you know, is always a good sign. It means we're doing something right. Um, and, uh, just meeting a lot of great people, even though it's, it's remote and, uh, but it's kind of fun because we get to see people's fur babies and real babies and yeah, it's nice.
0: That that's so wonderful to hear. You know, when I hear people talk about HVAC, I hear your name uh, come up a lot, even by other HVAC HVAC experts. So it's it's wonderful to have you back on the podcast, and it's wonderful to hear that people are finding out about the services that you're offering and that you're expanding. Um, what you know, and some of the things I just want to touch on here, and we'll have in the podcast links, is that you are doing a podcast as well, which is wonderful. Uh, you know, people should definitely check that out and I'll have that on the podcast page, and then you're also doing these webinars that are uh, free for people to listen in and and learn about a lot of these topics too, so uh, I highly suggest people check that out as a great resource, and um, yeah, so beyond that, one of the things uh, you and I just talked about uh, prior to recording here was, you know, VPD and how that's such a buzzword still, and I know we talked about last podcast, but uh, you know, I think reviewing it and kind of expanding on, on it a little bit would be a great place to start the podcast. So uh, I'll kind of let you take it from here.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, a vapor pressure deficit is somewhat of a, um, I don't know, a difficult parameter to wrap, wrap our brains around, but it is so important in terms of the, the health of our plants, whether you're growing outside or in a greenhouse or, or inside, plant transpiration rates, plant quality, um, their you know, nutrient delivery is all really dependent on the vapor pressure deficit. So in a nutshell, what, what VPD is, is it's the difference between what the vapor pressure is inside the air. So, so let's say you're in an indoor grow room and you have a specific temperature or humidity um, of that room. And um, the at, at that temperature and humidity, you have a vapor pressure. And the vapor pressure deficit is what is the vapor pressure of the room compared to the saturation vapor pressure at that same air temperature. So, um, what we're really trying to figure out is sort of how dry the air is and and the best way to think about it is the word is the key word which is pressure the bigger the vapor pressure deficit is the more pressure we're putting on a plant to evaporate water same with humans right if 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 we have a high vapor pressure deficit if it's dry let's say we're in southern california and we're in a pool and we get out of the pool and um you know we feel cool immediately because that water is evaporating from our skin that's because we have a pretty high vapor pressure deficit it's it's dry compared to what the temperature is um but if we were in say florida you know you travel three thousand miles do East, the humidity is so much higher that the vapor pressure deficit is so much smaller that that water takes a lot longer to evaporate. Well, it's the same exact thing with plants is that, you know, at the stomata is liquid water, right? It's pulled water from from its roots and it's transported it through its stem and it's up to the leaf and into the stomata and it's liquid water and it's saturated. And depending on the pressure that the air is putting on it, depending on how dry that air is, that's how quickly the plant is going to then evaporate and transpire that water. Um, and and the reason VPD is so important is this idea of transpiration, right? So the bigger the VPD is, the faster the plant's going to transpire. The lower the VPD is, the slower the plant is going to transpire. And transpiration is so critical to the plant's health. Transpiration um, helps with, of course, transporting water from the roots all the way through the plant. Um, Within that water are the nutrients coming from the soil or from the substrate that you're growing in. So that water is carrying nutrients to all the different plant parts. If we didn't have transpiration, there'd be no way to get you know, all those nutrients coming from these beautiful soils to to the other plant parts. It helps cool the plant through that evaporative cooling process. Um, and it also helps a little bit with, with photosynthesis, um, just because we need a little bit of that, you know, hydrogen molecule um, to create those carbohydrates, right, um, during photosynthesis. So uh, transpiration and VPD are so closely linked. And... You know, if you have a low rate of transpiration, uh, then what you might see is that plants could wilt, you can see some nutrient deficiencies, photosynthesis might be slower. Um, On the other hand, if your transpiration rate is too high, if the VPD is so, so high that, you know, in the room or the air is so dry, then transpiration could be so quick. Um, that if you don't have enough water at the roots in the soil and the substrate, then your plant will dry out, and that's when you start to see your plant wilt because there's not enough water for the plant to pull up through it um, and then evaporate into the air. The other thing is that you can get nutrient deficiencies if the plants if the plants transpire too quickly, including and the, the probably the biggest one is calcium. Um, calcium is transported. With water Um, so if the water literally is moving at a velocity too quick to carry this large calcium molecule with it then you'll see calcium deficiencies and that is usually seen by sort of like these brown edges um, along along the leaves especially new leaves Um, they're the most susceptible to that so yeah, you know, VPD and transpiration, plant health, plant uh, growth, all super intertwined together. Um, and and I love hearing, you know, I just mentioned that I was at this conference uh, last month, and the number of people that talked about VPD or that VPD was just in the conversation, just in their, you know, their, their lingo... Uh, has increased so much uh, since I started sort of preaching about VPD uh, a few years ago. And I'm just so, I'm, I'm glad to hear HVAC manufacturers talking about VPD, growers talking about VPD, monitoring and controls companies talking about using VPD as a metric to, you know, to monitor and manage the room environment, um, it's it's definitely becoming part of our everyday language, uh, which is which is great. It's going to be great for everybody.
0: Wow! That so that made me think about a couple different things here. So when we talk about transpiration, um, you want it to be sufficient to where you're not causing. Uh, the plant to work too hard, which would limit your plant growth, but also uh, not too slow that you have water or humidity in the air that could potentially lead to pathogen uh, issues too, like mold and mildew?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, when, when the humidity is high, that means that the vapor pressure deficit is low. And we know that when the humidity is high that, you know, mold tends to grow, right? That it... molds, you know, it it has a high water activity, uh, when, when the humidity is greater than 60%, um, when you have a stressed plant or you have a drying plant, I would say that a a plant that you've chopped and are now putting in a dry room, that that's a pretty stressed situation for that branch because it, it has lost its, you know, it's, it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's, major body part, moving water through it. And so, um, as it's, it's desiccating, as it's drying, um, you know, if we don't drop that humidity pretty low and we don't drop the moisture out of that plant fairly quickly, um, then, you know, molds are going to be like, oh, hey, this is awesome. I have like this, you know, really stressed out, plant that, you know, still has parts of it living as it's gasping for its last breath, I'm going to take advantage of it and and grow there. Um, For a living plant, um, if, you know, if the humidity is too high and the vapor pressure deficit is too low, um, then what, what can actually happen, because there's not enough pressure to evaporate the water from the stomata, is that that liquid water that the plant has, you know, lifted, uh, to, to the leaf and to the stomatal opening can stay, can, can just sit there. And now you have this exposed water. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a droplet necessarily, but you have this mouth that's open, ready to breathe out. And that can now become a place where mold can, can find, you know, uh, a place to, to grow. Um, On the other hand, if the VPD is so high and the room is so dry, um, so you're afraid of molds growing, right? You're afraid of having too much moisture in the room. You're afraid of condensation, right? And, and, And mold growth. And so you're like, okay, I'm gonna pull as much moisture out of the air as quickly as possible. And I'm gonna create a really dry environment so that those molds can't grow. Well, what ends up happening is that the plant gets really stressed out. Um, And so now you have a stressed out plant. And this is, you know, and I think growers, cannabis growers inherently know this, right? Because a lot of them will try to drop the temperature, try to drop the humidity in the last week or two of uh, the flowering plant's life. And what they're doing, whether they realize it or not, is stressing the plant so it thinks it's going to die um, because it is about to die. Uh, and um, and that causes it, right, to create more trichomes and terpenes and colors and all those, you know, beautiful aesthetic things that we're trying to, um, to get out of the plant. Um, but if we do that too soon, then the plant is stressed. And now these mold spores are like, Hey, I can take advantage of you. Your immune system is compromised. And, um, yeah, you know, like there's not as many places for me to land, but when I do land and I do find, um, you know, a nice spot, uh, I'm going to take you over. Uh, and so growers don't necessarily realize that it's not just high humidity, that can be detrimental to their plants and cause mold growth and disease, but it's also low humidity that can do the same. Powdery mildew is actually really interesting uh, in that it actually propagates in, or it actually transports its spores through dry air. Um, it, it The spores do need like a, a moist surface in order to grow, but they need it to be dry in order to move from one location to the other location. So you manage, you know, I, I just manage, imagine uh, a, a cannabis, you know, a grow room and it's really dry and you have all these circulation fans that are blowing air around and creating air movement, and helping with transpiration and help break up the boundary layer across the leaf. And while you just moved, you know, mold spores, powdery mildew, mold spores from one place to the rest of your room and then let's just say you don't have the best control as you switch from lights on to lights off and you get a humidity spike you just blew all those spores everywhere and now you created you know inadvertently an environment where those mold spores are going to be super happy to propagate and now you don't just have a problem in one place you have a problem everywhere. Um, So I just, I want, I want growers to know that, you know, too dry can be just as detrimental to the quality of your, of your plant and disease control as is too high of a humidity.
0: Yeah. And one thing you touched on there from a transpiration perspective was this idea of deficiencies showing in the plant due to its ability to transpire either too high or too low. Um, one thing that I've talked about um, in previous podcasts, like one, the one with, doc, with uh, Don Marshall that I thought was interesting, is the idea of root hair death. So both too much water in the soil and too mm-hmm. little in the water soil causes root hair death, which creates the same symptoms in the fact that the plant can no longer effectively take up water. So they're going to present fairly similar, even though the causes are uh you know both water related but on on two extremes and so i just wanted to remind folks of that because i think that's fascinating
1: yeah i mean that is a very good point um you know having soil uh, having a substrate that's that's overwatered, right? That that's too wet. Um, you prevent oxygenation, right? And the roots need oxygen. Yeah, your plant is using CO two, um, but your your roots are you know are, are using oxygen. And if you don't have air gaps, then uh, your roots are are gonna die. On the other hand, if there's no water, right? And and now you have this high VPD. You have this dry room that you're trying to grow in your plants are just gonna wilt and fall over because there's no water um to to transpire and and lift them up um you know that that is one of the other reasons why transpiration is so important for for non non non-woody plants is that they actually hold the plant up right like that's what we're seeing when Mm -hmm. when leaves wilt is that there's no is that we're losing water in the plant well the trunk of that plant is being held up through the hydrogen bonds of the water moving through that plant through transpiration. There, there's cool. no bark, right? There's no wood that's holding that plant up. It is water that's holding that plant up. Um, and so the first signs of, of not having water is first, you know, the, the leaves dry out. But if your plant starts to fall over, you're in trouble. Like you, you've probably passed the wilting point and you're not going to recover that plant.
0: Yeah, so what, you know, when you're, one question I had is when you're thinking about VPD, there's a lot of variables that create the temperature and humidity in a room, which all relate to this ratio. What are your main variables that you're looking at when we talk about uh, controlled environment agriculture? You know, really anything from, say, biomass to media, um, you know, bringing in air and, you know, exiting air what what how do all those relationships work together and, and how do you approach that uh you know as an engineer
1: yeah i mean every variable when growing a plant is interconnected with another variable or multiple variables you know as as an hvac mechanical engineer we are pretty focused on, you know, the aerial environment, the environment of the air around the plant, right? We're trying to control temperature and humidity and and vapor pressure deficit um, so that we can control, uh, you know, transpiration. But also temperature of the air affects the leaf temperature, which affects the rate of photosynthesis. Um, And so, you know, VPD is, is not... Um, mutually exclusive from temperature and humidity, and they're not necessarily exclusive from themselves either. Um, they're, you know, they all sort of work together. Um, and, and beyond that, the other parameters that we're interested in to control plant growth um, around the air is, is carbon dioxide, because plants can't photosynthesize without, without CO2 um, as well as, as the light environment and the quality of, of the air. Um, and the quality of the air includes, you know, does it have pests and pathogens in it? We hope not. Uh, are there, you know, dust particles? Odor, um, is another air quality measure that we help growers control and, and mitigate through our designs. Um, and although we don't design lights, uh, Our HVAC designs are incredibly dependent on the type and quantity and intensity of the lights that growers are using uh, to cultivate their plants. I mean, it is the number one load. Assuming that you're in a building... That is well insulated. If you're in an indoor facility, then the primary load is going to be the primary load by load, I mean heat gain to the room is going to be from the lights. Um, and then your primary, you know, dehumidification load is coming from the plants transpiring. Uh, if you're in a greenhouse, it's actually kind of the same it's not the lights, it's sunlight, uh, you know, solar radiation accounts for 65 to 70 percent of the total heat gain uh, into a greenhouse. And then again, you still have plants transpiring and maybe you have water evaporating from from the soil, from the media uh, to account for. Um, but, you know, if we can get pretty much 90 percent, 85 to 90 percent of the way there with our HVAC designs and equipment selections, if we know what the lights are and if we know what what plants you're growing, and how much you're going to water them, and how frequently you're going to water them. Um, And, you know, light, carbon dioxide, and temperature are three variables that are so essential to plant uh, growth and photosynthesis that there is actually a lot of research going on, uh, academic research, specifically around Lettuce plants and tomato plants and all these other horticultural crops that we can study at the university level that's getting federal funding um, to figure out uh, how to co-optimize these three variables. Um, you know, it, it, it because every plant has an optimum. It has a curve, um, where as you increase the temperature, photosynthesis increases. And then it hits some peak and then it starts to drop off. Well, you see a similar curve when it comes to carbon dioxide, when it comes to light. Um, but the point at which all three of those peaks intersect together, that is the optimal point at which we want to grow our plant. And every plant has a different peak for each of those three variables. I'm not kidding. What, what you would see for lettuce would look different than what you would see for basil than what you would see for cucumber, than what you would see for probably cannabis sativa versus cannabis indica versus, you know, the thousands of strains and, and genetics, uh, genetic crossbreeds that there are out there. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why cannabis is so challenging is because there are so many strains and cultivars out there that it's hard to, Figure out what the optimal point is for those three specific variables for every single one of those strains. I mean, I think something that would help this industry a lot would be to just find like five or 10 strains that everybody loves, everybody agrees on, is available to everyone, and we could just optimize uh, the control variables for those and then start playing with all the others. Um, But, you know, aside from that, what kind of drives me crazy sometimes when I talk to certain cannabis growers is this lack of understanding of, of the interactions between these three variables. So, so I'll walk into a room and you know, they'll have 1,000-watt you know, high-pressure sodium lamps, um, and they'll be running their CO2 at 1,500 parts per million. But then they're trying to control to a temperature of 75 degrees, and essentially what they're doing is that they're hitting the accelerator and the brake at the same time. You know, say what you want to say about the research coming out of Mississippi, right? Um, we know it's a, a crappy strain. We know that it's super old um, and nobody grows this, this, uh, this type of, of cannabis anymore. But, you know, there is a study that came out that said, you know, really the optimal temperature for cannabis is around 80 or 82 degrees. But I rarely see growers operating at that temperature. And I get it. I know why they're doing it because if the AC system went down, right, if you're operating at 80 or 82 degrees, you only have a few degrees of movement really at 85 degrees, you know, the the plant just shuts down. So it's better, right? Like if, if you are uncertain about your AC equipment operating when you're running high-pressure sodium lamps and at 82 degrees and you're, you think that your AC system could break down, then, yeah, running your room at 75 degrees so that you have sort of this 10-degree window to to make a fix, right, to get a temporary solution in there until you can get a compressor replaced or, or do whatever I, I, I get that that risk assessment but with the technology that we now have today you know versus 10 or 15 years ago um, we should have a lot more confidence in our HVAC equipment to keep operating even if our temperature is at 80 or 82 degrees you know if if, if every room if these cannabis facilities were using 1,000 watts, 80 degree temperature, and 1,500 parts per million, I mean, I think the yields would, would skyrocket. I mean, they would be so much higher. And, and growers who I've talked to that are towing that line, that are trying to optimize those three variables together, are having really successful results. Now, what I want to say about raising that temperature, if there's a grower out there that's like, okay... You know, I'm going to play with raising the temperature. I'm growing at 75 degrees and 50% relative humidity right now. So I'm going to adjust to 77 degrees, right? I feel comfortable at 2 degrees. My AC unit hasn't failed on me yet. And they raise the temperature. You should also be raising the relative humidity. So for every degree increase in temperature that, that you add to your target room set point, you should increase the relative humidity by three to five percent. So if you were growing at 75 degrees and 50 percent relative humidity, and now you want to go up to 77, you should probably be closer to, you know, 60 percent relative humidity. 68, 70 percent relative humidity. Um, If you're going to hit 80 degrees... This is a scary number for growers, I know, but if you're at 80 degrees, you should probably be closer to 65 or 70 percent relative humidity. I know that's scary, but that's a VPD of 1 to 1.2 kilopascals, which is the sweet spot for healthy, productive plants. Again, if you want to stress your plant and chill it at the end and you know, depleted of water and nitrogen and all these things that you do to stress the plant at the end of the light, at the end of life. Yes, I I get, you know, lower the, lower the temperature, lower the humidity, make it feel like it's, you know, late fall and humble, right? And that plant is going to die. But during your normal production, target a higher temperature, target a higher humidity. Your plant is going to be so healthy that those molds that you're concerned about are not going to have you know, a a place to, to, to grow because the plant is going to be healthy and it's going to be able to fight those, those diseases off.
0: That's, that's so interesting. That was great information. Um, Anecdotally, uh, a a good friend of mine, uh, Justin McGill, he had an employee who accidentally, uh, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but essentially had a huge humidity spike in his room. Uh, for a period of time before we caught it. And uh, his, his employee, his name was Buster, um, did this accidentally in, in, in this medical room and the plants just took off. And so they, he started calling it swamp mode because <laughs> essentially that higher humidity, higher temperature uh, in veg really led to, like you said, much healthier plants. And they weren't seeing powdery mildew Or just I think relation to what you're what you're alluding to and this idea that the plants are healthier too. So you know, I don't think humidity is something we necessarily have to be afraid of as much as we have been um, you know, 15, 20 years ago when people were growing in in their basements and closets. Um I, I think we have a better understanding of it. But but one of the things that you talked about that I think I I just wanna reiterate is this idea of the the massive genetic diversity that we're seeing In Mm. cannabis production so when we talk about a commercial facility you know they may have upwards 15 20 or more different cultivars in a given room and so trying to optimize that room for all the cultivars is really impossible because of that diversity and each one liking slightly different optimal points so trying to hit a target that works for you know as many plants as possible in that room and I realize that could be specific to each facility, but I think having that range is is really, really important. I mean,
1: you know, like being a politician, if you're trying to make everyone happy, you're making no one happy. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's basically what we're doing with these strains and cultivars. If you have half a, dof- half a dozen uh, different strains in the same room, you know, a grower is, is probably trying to find a temperature and humidity range that all of those strains can grow under, but none of them are going to be optimized for any of those strains, right? And, um, and, and that is a problem. I, you know, there have been a few growers that we've worked with that are strain-specific, uh, to their grow room, or they have two strains that have similar physiologies and environmental responses, and, and they've learned that, and so they grow those together. Um, you know, because there is so much genetic diversity, it is so hard to figure out what what the ideal conditions are for any of those strains because there's just not there, – even growers who are doing their own internal R&D – I don't know of any, and maybe you do, and, and I'm sure there's some out there who are looking strains specifically, you know, at, at light levels. Hopefully, they're looking at temperature and humidity levels as well, and CO2, but probably they're focused on light. Um, and uh, you know, when when we work with growers in vertical farms, and, and they're growing, say, lettuce and arugula and basil. One of the recommendations that I'll give them is I'll say, look, arugula is a cool weather plant, lettuce is a mild weather plant, and basil is a hot weather plant. There's a reason why tomatoes and basil um, are good companion plants. Uh, Well, there's several reasons, but one of which is that they both like a lot of sun and a lot of heat. Um, and the tomato plant helps shade uh, the basil plant. Uh, they also produce chemicals that protect each other um, in the soil. Uh, you might be interested to know that, Ted, if you didn't know that already. Um, yeah. But <laughs> so so here, let's just say we have these three species, right? You have arugula, lettuce, and basil, and they like different conditions. So what I'll tell growers is, look, let's take advantage of that. We will have the outlet from the air conditioner start where the arugula is because it likes cold temperatures. And then it's going to move across the lettuce plant. And then after it's picked up all that heat and humidity from the plants and from the lights, is then going to hit the basil plant. And that basil plant is going to be basking in the warmth. Um, and so you can literally, right, we can design this HVAC system to literally have these plants like go with the flow um, or grow with the flow. Uh, what... But with cannabis, it's so hard because I don't know the difference. I personally don't know the difference between, I don't know, what, you know, Gorilla Glue likes and what, I don't know, Super Glue likes. And maybe they're both because they're, they're you know, I don't know, you know, or what an indica versus a sativa uh, like. And, and I've had growers say, well, this indica, this is an indica, but it grows like a sativa. Or I have this sativa that grows like an indica. And, you know, it's like, oh, what does that mean, right? Are they just talking about the physiology? Are they talking about how they water and the nutrients they give it? Are they talking about the lights that it like? right? Like, I mean, there's when you say one is like the other, what what is the grower thinking that that means? And I bet it's different for every single grower. Um, and And so, you know, ideally... Ideally, again, we find these specific genetic uh, strains that everybody agrees on, and we can start there. Or if growers are doing their own internal R and D, they're looking at all the variables and not just focused on one uh, to figure out, you know, which which of their um, cultivars and strains like are like each other in all the ways, not just one way.
0: Yeah, as as a scientist and an engineer. I I can understand your uh, (laughs) desire for (laughs) consistency across genetics, Uh, but the challenge there, the counterpoint to that is uh, one, commercial growers need to grow the hype cultivars, the hype strains that people want in the market. You have to be able to sell your product. Uh, So that's one thing. The second thing I would add to that is um, we don't really know exactly, what the medicinal capabilities of this plant are, and so exploring the genetic diversity is really important at this yeah. stage of the game, and I think that will continue uh, as we learn more about the entourage effect and what, how the terpenes and cannabinoids and all these different phytochemical responses create a certain, uh, you know, effect for various human beings that are dealing with ail- different ailments. So. As, as nice as it would be to have everyone grow uh big macs i just don't think we're at that point in history right now like we are with other commercial crops due to some of these medicinal qualities but um i, I get, yeah, I get no, what you're that's
1: saying a, that's a very good point um, and you know just a couple of thoughts about that one is you know for for greenhouse growers uh who do have control over their environment maybe not as precise and consistent as an indoor facility, um, you know greenhouses are are more susceptible to their external environment, right? Whether it's a cloudy day, or a really hot sunny day, or a freezing cold day, um, you know you you have to you have to be able to live within a larger range of conditions, um, or be able to cultivate your plant and make those adjustments, right, um, necessary to to keep your plant healthy and productive even when you don't have the ideal situation. Um, and, and I've been really impressed with some of our clients and, and some of the growers that we've talked to who are who are looking for genetics that fit their environment. As opposed to trying to force an environment on a specific strain. So if you're, you know, in Texas or Florida, um, or you know, somewhere that's that's really humid, um, finding genetics, finding strains that uh, are less susceptible to mold pressures in a high hum- high humidity environment um, is going to make your life so much better and probably the cost of installation and production a lot lower because you're not trying to install air conditioners or dehumidifiers or these you know super power hungry pieces of equipment to dry your greenhouse out to grow a strain that likes it dry um, and and so uh, you know but that's what breeding is and and you know we've been breeding so many crops for 10,000 years Years um, and we're just scraping the surface here with cannabis, and you know maybe in ten thousand years we'll have like the very perfect strains, you know, um, that that uh, we all uh, can enjoy for all sorts of of, um, of reasons, um, and and you know just in terms of the medicinal qualities uh, of of the cannabis flower of the of the plant. Uh, you know, it's, it's similar to what we're learning about other horticultural crops that, you know, I'm, again, I'm not a lighting person necessarily, but of course there's a lot of research around light, but, you know, the, we know, you know, that PAR, photosynthetically active radiation, is necessary for photosynthesis, right? And photosynthesis is growth. Photosynthesis is fixing carbon dioxide to produce carbohydrates, but that does not necessarily translate into the quality characteristics of the plant. And what we have been learning um, for all sorts of plants is that it's all those sort of in between wavelengths, it's the edge wavelengths that uh, are responsible for color, that are responsible for the, you know, anthocyanin that's produced by a red oak leaf lettuce. Uh, What I love about that particular um, compound that plants produce is that it's only produced when that lettuce plant is exposed to UV. If you never expose that plant to UV, it would be green. But the second, well, maybe minutes that it's exposed to UV light, it produces the red color. And what scientists think is that the anthocyanin is actually the plant's natural sunscreen. Um, And so it's protecting itself from UV. Well, we think it's a really pretty plant, right? And we want to eat it. Um, And so, you know, learning about this with with cannabis as well, right? What are the colors? What are the terpenes? What are the, the CBD profiles, right, that we can produce from all these other wavelengths of light that are not necessarily shown on the McCree curve? Um, And and I think that's really exciting. Um, And I think the same is going to be discovered with temperature and humidity and VPD control, with CO2 control, that maybe by dropping the carbon dioxide level to 400 parts per million, um, you know, a during veg uh, maybe produces, I don't know, uh, a certain different quality of plant. I mean, something that we know, if you track global CO2 levels, is that the CO2 naturally increases from spring through fall. And why does that happen? Well, because in the spring and the summer, right, plants are growing really quickly and they're consuming the carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere. And then as they're dying, they're actually, their respiration rates start to take over their photosynthesis rates, right? They don't need to grow anymore in the fall. They're dying now. And so that death is is actually releasing CO2 and there's less plant matter to absorb that CO2. So maybe, I don't know, maybe a cannabis plant wants lower CO2 levels, you know, when it's young or in the, in a middle stage, right? High levels early because you have these high levels holding over from the winter. And then maybe lower CO2 levels in the middle of its life. And then boost it again in late flower when we already know that CO2 levels are high in the atmosphere. I don't know. I just literally made that up right now on the fly while talking to you. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, but that that's the type of, right? Like, that's the type of science... Um, that is so interesting um, about growing any plant, I think. Um, And, and the fact that we get to control those variables by growing in greenhouses and growing indoors. um, I don't know, that's the fun. That's, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's exciting.
0: Yeah. So two main takeaways I have from What we've talked about so far is one we can't look at any one of these variables uh in a vacuum they all relate to each other and so when we're talking about lighting or we're talking about vpd or we're talking about co2 we really need to be talking about all of these things in in conjunction uh and then my other thought relating to all this is when we look at research that's been done we have to realize that that research was done on a particular you know strain particular genetics and that that may not appropriately apply exactly to our environment. So we can't say, you know, this is optimal CO2 in, in this facility. Um, this is optimal VPD. This is optimal, um, you know, par levels. We, we need to take that data and assimilate it and then try and extrapolate how this might apply to our personal situation, I guess, or room for our plants and and those genetics. Yeah. Does that, yeah. Is that fair to say? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, you nailed it. And, you know, if, if I were a grower, I would probably pick my, my favorite strains, you know, and, and what what's a favorite strain? It, it's, you know, super robust and, and, you know, never gets powdery mildew, or maybe it has low yields, but uh, really high THC quality, or maybe just, you know, People just love it uh, for whatever reason. Um, you know, starting with those few strains and, and if you have an R&D room, you know, try to find what at least CO2, temperature, VPD, and light levels are, you know, those combinations work best for your plant. Um, and, and and then, you know, and then grow those plants, maybe even with all of its sister Strains that you have there, but now you've optimized the environment for your "quote unquote" favorite, right? And the others um, are—they're are, going to grow, right? They're—they're going to be fine, but they're just not going to be optimized. Or ideally, you're growing—you know—one or two very similar strains in the same space, which is an argument for having smaller rooms, right? Of having rooms that are maybe a thousand or two thousand square feet as opposed to a room that's six or 10,000 square feet, where, you know, if you have 10,000 square feet of a flower room, you are absolutely going to have a lot of strains that you're growing. And it's just going to make it even more challenging to find the sweet spot where all of those strains are, are able to, to grow well. Um, so yeah, um, and and you know I, I want to make sure that people realize too that you know it's it's we're talking a lot about the upper environment around you know the leafy part of the plant, but what happens at, at the root level is also impacted by what happens um, above, right? Um, everything from you know your your nutrient levels and and how frequently and how much you water. Um, to even how much evaporation um, you get from your substrate uh, that you're growing on you know we, we have seen grower you know growers are, are growing in you know five or ten or larger gallon you know pots fabric pots um, and there's a, a large surface area of exposed substrate and you know here here they're watering once or twice a day, and you can very you can see like if, if they're actually tracking temperature and humidity in the room, you can see a spike of water when they irrigate, and then you can watch the humidity decline over time until they until they water again, and that water is not coming that that humidity is not necessarily coming from the plant; it's coming from evaporation from The substrate Um, and so Mm -hmm. we've seen some growers who who sort of create like a cover around the substrate but then you have to be careful with that because then you might not get good oxygenation and breathing um, around the roots so um, you know and and then if we ask the the HVAC system to be really dynamic and dehumidify more during a watering event and then dehumidify less you know you know later HVAC equipment it can only do so much, um, and and it's not super responsive. Um, you know, it tries to respond, but you know, you're. Let's just say you're in like a two thousand square foot room. Where do you have your sensors? How many sensors do you have? Are you averaging? Are you controlling based off of a peak temperature or humidity? Right. So so the bigger the room you have, you know, you can expect to have more variability, um, but also your HVAC system can only control to the inputs that it gets. Um, And so, you know, it's not going to react really, really quickly, um, which is why you see those those spikes when lights first turn on or when lights first turn off, because your your AC unit needs a minute well, it probably needs about five minutes um, to actually respond to that change, which is why it's great when, when growers dim their lights, do a sunrise-sunset type of schedule, um, or if they have a sophisticated control system, they can, they can actually program um, their, their uh, control algorithm to start ramping up right, or ramping down uh, depending on when the lights are going to turn on or off to sort of anticipate a big change in the environment. Um, so, uh, you know, when it comes to monitoring and controls, um, it, it's it's really important to think about um, not only the, the capacity of your equipment and can it pull out all of that humidity, can it, can it control temperature and remove all that heat from the lights, but also how quickly can it respond? Is it going to go into a defrost cycle? I can't even tell you how many clients now that we've had where we've helped them troubleshoot that all of a sudden their system stops dehumidifying and it starts heating. And that equipment went into, like, just a standard defrost cycle for five minutes. And they literally lose control for five minutes of, of their room. Um, and so then we're like, can we disable it? Can we change the frequency? You know, like, all these different things. Um, and and just understanding what your equipment can do and why it's doing what it does, um, you know, is, is important, you know, if nothing else, for just your sanity. Um
0: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I like, uh, using the, the blue mat system, uh, when mm. they, where they make sense. Uh, just, yeah. just for the yeah. idea that you're getting, uh, water, uh, to the plants at a lower rate. And so it's, it's more consistent. So you don't see as yes. many as humidity spikes. They're not for every, they're not for every, uh, growing situation for sure. And they have pros and cons, um, But which I'm happy to talk about with anyone who's who's interested in that sort of irrigation system uh, because we do work with them. But uh, that is one perk to them that I just want to mention. Now, one other thing that you talked about in terms of how, you know, the challenges around all this genetic diversity and everything and optimizing it, you know, we see the same thing with soils and media. And I just want to touch on that because people think that there's like a best soil out there. Well, there really isn't, you know... As someone who formulates soil and nutrients, like I'm trying to come up with one that's gonna—it's almost like a shotgun approach. What's gonna work in most situations for most plants uh, to create, you know, their adequate um, needs, so we won't see any issues with deficiencies, and everything will be at sufficiency. But you know, one of the things that I like to do with the growers that we work with is. you know, looking at all these variables that we talk about is also, from a nutrient perspective, then do testing so that we can customize the nutrients that we're sending them for their media and, and, and their cultivars that they're running in their environment as we see these tests over time. So collecting that data, we can start dialing these things in on the, on the nutrient side. And, you know, it would be the same, I assume, on the HVAC side and the environmental control side. Um, in terms of that data collection and and slowly optimizing these targets uh, based off of that data.
1: Yeah, I mean for for you and and when thinking about soils, I mean, how do you decide what is the right water capacity or irrigation frequency or irrigation methodology? I mean, are you also looking at what's happening in the environment around the, the top of the plant? Um, how, I mean, how, how do you see those interactions playing out?
0: Well, I'll start by saying I'm, I'm still learning. Uh, this is interesting. you're interviewing me. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think I think we're still learning. What I try to do is stay, I, I think by narrowing the range of variability in in terms of the the media and and water, so that we can keep it within a narrower range, creates uh, better outcomes. So by using you know blue mats, for example, we're able to reduce the fluctuations in in the water, in the water, uh, in the soil. And by doing that, we, we tend to see better better overall growth and yields. Um, and I, you know, we have targets that we aim for in our media, but as like you, one thing you mentioned is every media is going to be a little different. So the, the amount of like peat or if you're using actual soil or cocoa, whatever your, whatever your media is, it's going to have slightly different water holding capacities. Um, and so all of those things need to be factored in when we look at how you know what an optimal uh, soil moisture level is. and so I, I think it's a complicated yeah. question. I think we're still learning and I have a pretty good idea for my soils or soils that have similar base uh, materials, but beyond that, you know I think uh, I think we're still learning and and I think that's exciting.
1: It is it is Yeah, you know um, when it comes to to water, uh, you know, I, I was talking, when, when I was talking about VPD and, and when it's, you know, the VPD is really high and, and the air is really dry, that your plant is, you know, there's more pressure, vapor pressure on your plant to, to transpire and to suck water through it, right, from, from the roots. Um, if you, if the water is not there, um, you are more likely going to see a plant start to wilt because it's not a well-watered plant. Um, and so then you need to water more frequently, right? And, oh, by the way, you may also need to adjust your nutrient levels, um, because your plant is going to be sucking water so quickly that, um, You know, you might need to add more calcium uh, because you need to make sure some calcium gets to the plant so that you don't have that calcium deficiency. Um, Or you may need to add more nutrients because the plant is, you know, is growing so quickly that it needs more nutrients um, to to pull through there. On the other hand, if if your VPD is really low and the humidity is really high, um, then you probably don't need to water as frequently because your plants aren't going to be transpiring as quickly. Um, and so, uh, you know, your, your water frequency and your nutrient levels could actually be lower. Um, and it's kind of another way to think about this is that by lowering the vapor pressure deficit, by actually having a slightly more humid environment, we can conserve water and nutrients. I mean, think about that. I mean, what a cool way to conserve water.
0: Yeah, so there's a few topics that I'm gonna have to have you back on uh, in the near future. (laughs) We're gonna have to do a part two because we haven't talked about water use efficiency and how you you know one aspect of agriculture is that it uses a ton of water. I was just talking with Kelly Vance over at Beneficial and he was saying like, something like seven gallons of water is required to grow an almond. And you know, a lot of these different crops require a lot of water and we're, we're wasting water when we have drought. And, and you know, it's such, water is such a huge issue right now um, for us yeah. as a society. So I, I wanna talk about that. We haven't talked about resource use efficiency. Um, we haven't talked about the benefits of using different sensors. Um, I want to talk to you personally about living soils in vertical grow and airflow and biomass and the amount of soil and, and how all those things relate. Um, and I want to talk to you about air filtration with viruses and bacteria being such a hot topic these days. Those are all topics we haven't even gotten to. There is one topic <laughs> that I absolutely have to get in this podcast, though, because I get asked this question all the time, and I think you might have some some good feedback. People okay. want to know about curing and optimal environments for curing.
1: Ah, um, curing. Yes. And yes. there
0: isn't a lot of research out there on this. What can you add to uh, this topic? Um, sorry, I didn't prep you or warn you. I was going to ask you this. No, no, um, no
1: it's, it's totally fine.
0: What, and, what, and could, c- what could you share about it? I guess
1: yeah sure and and by curing i'm assuming you also mean drying because usually the two kind of go in hand in hand though they are somewhat different processes
0: yes and I, we're finding okay. that uh one you know one in- interesting anecdote about this is the market has changed from wanting you know 10 years ago these h- long cured uh you know cannabis flower to now it's about having freshly dried cannabis flower in terms of preserving terpenes because you know all of these things are going to slowly uh dissipate over time we're going to you know we're going to lose um certain certain things so how do we best dry cannabis from an environmental perspective um in your experience
1: yeah in in our experience thank you for um the disclaimer so um you know we (laughs) so so Drying and curing are slightly different. Sometimes we see them happening in the same room, um, you know, in sequential days. Sometimes there's a specific dry room and a specific cure or product storage room, um, which we see that being called that now as well. Uh, you know, with drying, our goal is to suck out at least 50% of the moisture, or f- I, I really I should say 40% of the moisture as quickly as possible. And, and I say 40% specifically because I made a comment very early in this uh, podcast that at a 60% moisture content, you have the highest water activity of, of molds and spores and bacteria. So if we can drop the water content um, you know, by 40%, then we are going to uh, really avoid the growth of those diseases and, and avoid that uh, a lot of our growers are saying you know help us to remove you know 40 to 50 percent of the the total moisture content we're going to remove so let's just say that you know the the, the final moisture content that they're going to try to achieve is is 12 percent right somewhere between 10 and and, and 13 or 14 percent um that uh they want to get it down to you know 40 or 50 percent in the first 24 hours. Now doing that uh, is pretty intensive and and kind of the challenge is is that we're trying to remove 50 percent on day one and then we're trying to remove the remaining say 30 percent over the course of the next eight or or ten days um, and, and, and just do sort of a slow burn. So day one is to prevent contamination. And the rest of the time is to preserve those terpenes and trichomes and the quality characteristics that you just spent the last, you know, 16 weeks developing. Um, and, and we don't want to dry it so quickly in the, the last, you know, eight, days of the drying cycle or whatever that that final period is because we don't want to um we don't want to vaporize the oil uh that uh is in those trichomes right we want to preserve that as part of the drying process um and and if we over dehumidify if we try to re- if we try to remove continue removing the same rate of moisture that we did on day one um then we're going to lose a lot of those oils and, and terpenes in the process. Um, so, I, you know, day one, 50% moisture removal, if you can. If you can do it in 24 hours, then, you know, 48 and 72 hours. Um, but we're really pushing it. If we go beyond 48 hours, I would say pushing it in terms of, you know, risk of contamination. But the, you know, fine, again, you know, I had mentioned that HVAC equipment, doesn't, doesn't respond really quickly and doesn't really like a lot of variability if it can help it. And so a lot of times we have a different HVAC system that's operating on day one than we do the rest of the time. Um, and, and so, you know, because because we want to do as much dehumidification as possible on day one and then just a little the rest of the time. And it is almost impossible To find an HVAC unit that can go from you know zero to a hundred in the blink of an eye. So so that's that's kind of the drying process and then I will say that airflow is really essential. Um, I love it when growers are using hanging racks. That is fairly easy for us to move air through whether it's vertically or horizontally. Bakers racks oh my God, what a bitch. That's worse than vertical farming. Um, you know, I mean, you have such a narrow gap of trying to move air through those 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 flower buds. Um, I just, I want those to go away, uh, I'll be honest. Um, and then when it comes to curing, uh, you know, something that we've started doing, because there's this whole burping thing, right? And And what we're trying to do is, you know, you've, 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 you've trimmed the, 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 buds and now you have them in these bins or these buckets or containers, you know, whatever you want to call it. And, um, they're, they're off gassing, right. And, and they're curing themselves. And in that off gassing, we want, we burp, right. We burp that container to replenish it then with oxygen. Uh, with air, and there must be an oxidation oxidation process that we're actually trying to facilitate in in, in all of this. Um, and so we replace the the what's off with with air in the room, and then we close the lid again. And then you know, 24 hours later, we do the same thing. Well, what happens if we never ventilate this room, right? If we never bring fresh air into this room, is it possible that this room could become so filled with that offgassed you know compounds VOCs that when we burp the container, when we open these containers, we're just refilling that that headspace with the VOCs that we you know let out yesterday. Um, so what we've been doing and working with growers and sort of getting their permission and getting good feedback on is providing a little bit of fresh air in the cure rooms, just doing a little bit of ventilation. Um, so that we are continuously removing those VOCs and exchanging it with fresh air from the outside. We always filter this air. I don't want anyone thinking that we're just bringing outside air through a window. We're definitely not doing that. You know, we're, we're using high-efficiency filters to bring that air in. We'll definitely need, you know, odor mitigation, um, you know, of the time because we are um, releasing those VOCs out, you know, to the outside, to the exterior of the building. Um, But what our growers are telling us is that they're getting good quality by curing with this bit of fresh air and just keeping that air fresh. Um, So, you know, the curing process, you know, it seems to happen... I don't know. I mean, I, I mentioned that, you know, it, it has morphed. Some of our projects, the names have morphed into product storage as opposed to, um, to a cure room. And I think some of that has to do with the regulations and codes in your specific jurisdiction and where you're located, which is why we're seeing such a variability in that. But ultimately, you're, you're keeping it in that same place until you package it and, and send it off, and so those those buds can stay in that room, right, anywhere from a couple of weeks to several months, um, and, and it's really important to maintain a good temperature in there, but really when it comes to humidity and moisture control, hopefully, you know, by the time you finish that drying process, if you've moved it into uh, a dedicated cure room, you don't want your flowers to either absorb or release moisture. So when we talk about vapor pressure deficit, this is where the science would really help is to know what is the right VPD to basically hold that flower in stasis, right? Like we don't want it to to get any more wet or any more dry than it is. I mean, unless that is your goal. Um, And so, We, you know, depending on the client, depending on the project and the location, um, we might have, you know, air conditioning as well as dehumidification and humidification to, to always be able to very precisely control the cure room, uh, so that we don't, we don't dry or, or wet the final product. Does that help?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The one question I have to all this is, you know, you gave some targets like removing 40% of the moisture in the plant within the first 24 hours and then, you know, tailoring down from there. Um, You know, that's great for a commercial facility or someone with a water activity meter. But what sort of like, you you know, I want to I want to also speak to like that home grower or people that don't have the ability to dial in their Environmentals, quite so much. Like, are there any pointers or targets that you would recommend? You know, like you alluded to the idea that you know, baker's racks are not as good as you know, bucking and dry hanging the plant. Um, right, what other sort of things can we do that you would consider to be you know, more optimal or best practice in relation to dry? I, I,
1: yeah, I mean, I think air movement is super key, um, which is why I don't like baker's racks because it's just hard to move air through there. So just like in you know in a in the cultivation facility, if you have high humidity, one way that you c- one way you can mitigate that high humidity is by blowing air across your plants to help break up that boundary layer, help you know the water move away from the plant that it's that it's transpired and and evaporated, um, rather than it just sort of hovering around the plant. Same thing with the drying room is even if you can't control to a specific temperature and humidity is if you're moving air and not fast, but just, you know, you feel the air moving um, through that room and across those branches and, and flowers, then, um, you're probably going to be in good shape. And and we want that air to be filtered if possible and recirculated because we don't want to bring anything in because, um, Again, we don't want to, to blow those spores around. Um, you know, if, if, you can, if you can target a temperature and humidity, we want the temperature to be less than 70 degrees. I don't think that the temperature needs to be less than 60 degrees. We have some growers who are really trying to chill their plants. But if you can hit 65 or 70 degrees, which most sort of residential or light commercial equipment can do, um, then uh you know the the relative humidity to target again is less than 60 percent um you know somewhere between 50 and 60 percent would be ideal um again you know at that 60 percent you know i talked about moisture content and water activity um but the same is true for for relative humidity is that that is the moisture you know relatively speaking, pun intended, that's the moisture content of the air. And so keeping the relative humidity below 60% is going to be, you know, helpful. Um, and, you know, the best way to do that, and, and even in some of our commercial facilities, we, we, we do do it still, and I said do do, we do do it old school um, with, you know, just some mini splits and and dehumidifiers and working together and that still seems to work pretty well um for a lot of facilities so so air movement a temperature between 65 and 70 degrees and a relative humidity less than 60 percent and you know if, if you can control those variables you'll be in good shape
0: awesome thank you for that i think that'll be helpful for people yeah Um, Well, we've been talking for a while now. I know you're busy. Uh, I would love to follow up with you with some of these other questions on on another podcast. Yeah, I'd love to
1: talk about resource use efficiency in general, dig in more about that water thing. Um, I know, uh, at least here in California, energy is on a lot of people's minds because of the new 2022 code um, that was passed. And so I know growers are worried about that and, um, you know, Anyway, I think there's a lot we we can continue talking about. So I'll look forward to the next conversation.
0: Thank you. Well, I I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. And uh, I look forward to following up with you really soon.
1: Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Tad. Thank you.
0: That was Dr. Nadia Saba, also known as Dr. Greenhouse. You can find her on Instagram under the handle Dr. Greenhouse. Be sure to give her a follow because she's always offering new classes, webinars, and speaking around the country. You are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of KISS Organics. I'll post pertinent links on the podcast page at www.kisorganics.com. Just click on the Learn tab and then Podcast. And if you're looking for soils or soil amendments or fabric beds or blue mats for your facility or garden, please give us a call or hit us up through the website contact page or TAD, T-A-D, at K-I-S-Organics.com. Thanks for listening.